The scripture reading today is taken from Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. But God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning slided up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the director of youth ministries at Christ City Church. It's my joy uh, to be here with you today. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our text. Father, thank you so much for this psalm. Thank you, Lord, for its rawness and just the uh, depths of, of pain that the psalmist explores here. Father, thank you that uh, your word speaks to us uh, so that we can come out of, of this place of suffering, trusting you and trusting in your promises. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear this morning so that we would be open to hear your word and to hear the gospel. Lord, would your spirit do a mighty work today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What does it mean to suffer well? Uh, my grandfather-in-law, he was uh, truly this amazing man. Uh, he was a very, very well-respected uh, pastor. He loved the Lord deeply, uh, and he just had this kind of uh, way about him that was almost like, um, it's almost indescribable, this quality of, of genuineness and, and love that you only really get with years and years and years of kind of faithfully following Jesus. Well, a few months after uh, my wife and I got married, uh, we actually received a phone call uh, from her parents, and it was bad news. Jody's grandpa uh, had been diagnosed with a stage four stomach cancer. Uh, they were on a trip to Hawaii. This is one of their first vacations that wasn't a missions trip. And the whole time, uh, Carlin, he just kind of felt off. He was like nauseous and just not feeling well, all that stuff. So when they got home, uh, he went to the doctor, and the doctor did a bunch of tests, and it was cancer, and he only had a few months uh, left to live. 
So a little bit after we got that news, uh, we went down to their ho- house in Birch Bay uh, just to see them and to talk with them. And I'll never forget this conversation that I, I had with Carlin while we were down there. Uh, we're sitting in the kitchen, just talking about life, talking about uh, the sickness, all that stuff. And I said something to him along the lines of, well, you know, maybe the Lord will do something amazing here. You know, maybe he's going to heal you. And, and Carlin's response to me when I said that, it just, it just hit me. You know, it's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. He looked me in the eyes and he said, no, I'm ready. I'm ready to go home. I mean, think about that response for a second. How can someone in their right mind say something like that? He had no fear. He had no dread, no worry. Just this complete and absolute trust in God's goodness and love in the midst of this tragedy and deep suffering. How is this possible? Well, I think our psalm today actually helps us kind of answer that question. I think our psalm today gives us insights into what it means to suffer well. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this psalm and we're going to try to answer the question, what does it mean to suffer well? And to do that, we're going to look at four different things. First, we're going to look at the psalmist's despair. Second, we're going to look at his doubt. Third, we'll look at his discovery. And finally, we'll look at his worship or his doxology. So four points, despair, doubt, discovery, doxology. And I know that's one more point than you're normally used to, but I promise, okay, I'm going to try to keep it short. Uh, With Brant being on vacation, I kind of figured that you guys could use a... uh, a break from maybe some longer, monotonous sermons, right? <laughs> I, I'm kidding. You know, Brant sermons are amazing. I love Brant. You guys are blessed to have Brant bring you uh, God's word every week. Uh, Brant, if you are listening to the podcast of this later, uh, just know I love you, bro. Your sermons are awesome. Uh, anyways, back to the point. Uh, my hope is that by looking at these four things, we're actually going to be able to see that suffering well comes from holding fast to God's word. Let me say that again. Suffering well comes from holding fast to God's word. So let's get started and look at our first point together, despair. If you have your Bibles, look with me at verses 1 through 6 in our psalm. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Now, just from uh, hearing that read, it should be fairly obvious to us that the psalmist is in deep despair. You know, we don't know why he's in this state. We don't know what's caused this. Uh, We don't know if it's some sort of personal crisis in his life or if it's this great national tragedy in Israel. We just don't know. But what we do know is that he's suffering. You know, here he is and he's in the pits. And the psalmist's pain, it's evident to us in the language that he's using to describe his situation. You know, our text says that he's crying out to God. He's in this anguished state of prayer. During the day, he's, he's seeking the Lord. And at night, it says he's got his hands stretched out to God, just praying for help. 
He's moaning. His spirit, it feels faint within him. He can't sleep. Our text says, you hold my eyelids open. He's wearied, tired, in pain, and he can't even find rest in sleep. Charles Spurgeon, who's a a famous preacher, he says about this verse, some of us know what it is, both physically and spiritually, to be compelled to use these words. No respite has been afforded us by the silence of night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment and our spirit in anguish. You know those nights when you're just in such deep despair that you just can't calm yourself down enough to sleep? When your bed feels more like a a torture device than a comfort to you, where you lie awake and with every passing moment, you're just driven further and further into your pain? That's what the psalmist is talking about here. You know, our text says that he's confused. It says that he's so troubled that he cannot even speak. The deeper into his despair that he goes, the thicker the fog in his brain gets, and he doesn't even know what to say anymore. He doesn't even know how to verbalize the pain that he's experiencing to God. Even the psalmist's attempts to remember better times, you know, to go back to things that used to comfort him, they're not working to calm him down anymore. In verse 6, he tries to sing hymns and to meditate on them, but it doesn't help. I mean, here's a man who's suffering. Here's a man who is in the absolute pit of despair. And I know, I know that some of you are in this place this morning as well. I know that some of us here today kind of viscerally reacted as I was explaining what was going on in this text because you feel like it's describing you. You know, you're in despair. You're in pain. You struggle to find comfort in the things that used to bring you comfort. The amount of sleepless nights you're experiencing, it's quickly adding up. You're confused, you're hurt, you're grieving. You know what the psalmist is going through because you're there right now. I don't know what's gotten you there. You know, maybe it's something that's going on in your job. Maybe it's something in your home. Maybe a relationship has ended for you. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. I don't know why you're despairing, but this psalm, it's spoken to you this morning because you are there. You're in this pit of despair right now. And if that's you, you if that's you today, let me just speak to you for a second. Notice in our psalm what Asaph does in his pain. You know, notice where he goes with it. He goes to the Lord in prayer. He doesn't turn to drink. He doesn't turn to lust or pornography. He doesn't turn to find comfort in food. He doesn't binge watch Netflix. He turns to God in prayer and he lays his pain bare before the Lord. See, the first step, first step in suffering well is taking your pain and bringing it to the Lord, verbalizing your pain to him. The first step in suffering well, it's prayer. But even though the psalmist prays out to God, he's still suffering, isn't he? He's still struggling. And this actually leads to the next section in our psalm and the next point, which is 
doubt. Look with me at verses uh, 6 through 9 of our passage today. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. You know, in all of this despair, our psalmist, he poses a series of questions to God. These are questions that ultimately kind of reveal his doubts about God's character. You know, the psalmist is in such turmoil here that he's beginning to actually question God's love for him. And what's really interesting about these questions is that they actually echo themes that we find in a very famous text of scripture, and that's Exodus 34. And what happens in that text is that uh, Moses, he's kind of like God's prophet. He asks God to reveal himself to him. You know, Moses, he wants to see God in all of his glory. He wants to experience the fullness of God. But God says, no, this is too dangerous. You know, God's presence is like this all-consuming fire. And if Moses were to just behold the, the full glory of God, even though he's this amazing, you know, prophet, extraordinaire kind of guy, he's going to die. He can't stand before a holy God in his sinfulness. But what God's going to do is he's going to partially reveal himself to Moses. He's going to take Moses and he's going to hide him behind this rock. He's going to pass by the rock and then he's going to allow Moses to see his back as he passes by. And as God passes by, he exclaims his character to Moses. Listen to what God says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And this text of scripture, this actually became a very, very significant text for the Jewish people. You know, it was one of those high points for them where God sort of revealed himself to them through Moses. And so every good Jew knew this text, including our psalmist. Now look at our psalm again. Do you see the parallels between this passage and our psalmist's questions? You know, he asks if God's love has ceased. Something God says that he abounds in and that he has for thousands of people in our Exodus text. He asks if God's promises are at an end, but our Exodus text says that he is a God of faithfulness. He asks if God has forgotten to be gracious. Something paralleled in Exodus when it says that God is merciful and gracious. He asks if God's anger has shut up his compassion, but Exodus 34, it says that God is slow to anger. Do you see what's going on here? The psalmist, he knows his Bible well. He knows that God has declared himself to be a certain way, but the problem is, the problem is that he's not feeling that right now. There is a tension in the psalmist between the expectation of God's character and his actual feelings in the moment. He's doubting God's love and care for him. And I think that this actually teaches us something that's really important. 
And that is, it's okay to doubt. You know, it's okay to take these sorts of questions before God. He can handle them. God can handle your doubts. But I want you to notice something. Notice the type of doubt that we're talking about when I say that. You see, there is a uh, popular trend in uh, certain church circles today, and that trend is called deconstruction. And the idea of deconstruction is that we should sort of question or doubt our faith to kind of pull it apart and deconstruct it so that we can really get to the essentials, to the root of it. So for instance, right, we should question and doubt the way that we were taught to read the Bible uh, to maybe get away from some of the presuppositions we might have. We should question, we should doubt uh, the validity of particular interpretations of Scripture because they might just be power plays or politically motivated. We should question and doubt the leaders in our churches because in all likelihood, they're more motivated by self-interest than by self-sacrifice. And this idea of deconstructive doubt, it's supposedly meant to sort of free you from misunderstanding and actually bring you into this deeper understanding of what Scripture actually teaches. But this doubt, this kind of doubt, is very, very different from what our psalmist is doing in our passage. And the difference, it lies in this one simple fact. You see, the psalmist's doubt takes God at his word, and it brings these questions to God from his word. But the doubt of the world, you know, this deconstructive doubt, it places the individual in a relationship over and above God's word as the sole sort of interpreter and arbiter for what's true in it, and then questions God's word from that worldly standpoint. And this kind of doubt, it's dangerous if it's left unchecked. You know, it doesn't lead to good places. Uh, A friend of mine, uh, he was actually in ministry, uh, he began to play around with this idea of deconstructive doubt. And he started to ask these questions of scripture from this place of sort of assumed authority in his life. He started to ask questions and he kind of placed himself as the final arbiter for what's right and good and true in the Bible. And something I noticed as I would have conversations with him and as I heard him talk about these doubts that he was having was that every time he would look at the Bible to kind of wrestle with these things, he would say, yeah, you know, but did God really say that? Is that really what God wants from us? You know, a particular uh, topic would come up that had maybe been a hot-button issue in our culture. He'd look at the Bible, see that his teaching kind of wasn't in line with the cultural way of thinking, and then he'd go, yeah, but, you know, did God really say? And it started with him kind of just having these doubts about some of these uh, secondary issues, issues that are kind of on the periphery of our faith. But as time went on and as he allowed this process to continue in his life, he began to question more and more things that are central to the message of Christianity. He started to question more and more of the foundational teachings of Scripture until eventually he got to a place where he just rejected Christianity altogether. And it all started because he took up this accusatory posture towards Scripture. Accusatory posture that placed him as this final authority for what was right and wrong in the Bible. And this accusatory tone, it's way, way different than what our psalmist is doing. 
You know, my friend approached scripture asking each time he came to this, a, a new topic that needed to be deconstructed. And he'd ask this question, did God really say? Did God really say? But you know who the first person in the Bible to take up that posture is? To ask that question is? It's the devil. You know, that's the question that he asks Eve to get her to eat the forbidden fruit. Did God really say? You know, did God really say? When we doubt and when we deconstruct and that deconstruction starts from a posture of did God really say, that's literally the first lie of the enemy. That's the way the accuser gets people to question God's word. It's from the devil. But when we doubt like the psalmist, we don't ask, did God really say? Instead, we say, God, you said. Look at the psalmist's questions uh, to God once again. Notice his posture uh, towards God's word there. He's not saying, did God really say that he's a God of steadfast love? He's not saying, did God really say that he's gracious and compassionate? He's not saying, did God really say that he'll be faithful to fulfill his promises? No, he says, God, you said that you were a God of steadfast love. God, you said that you were a God faithful to fulfill your promises. God, you said that you would be gracious and compassionate. You see, his posture is one of submission to God's words. His questions, they come from the reality that he's not experiencing God's word to be true in that moment. And he's crying out to God saying, God, you said, like right here in Exodus 34, you said, and that's the difference between this dangerous doubt and a healthy doubt. You know, one says, did God really say that? And the other says, God, you said. One submits to God's word as the authority for their life, and the other assumes the position of authority over God's word and then accuses it like the enemy. So the psalmist is in deep despair. And in his desperation, he cries out to God saying, God, you said. And this crying out of his doubts to God, it leads to uh, the turn in our psalm, which actually brings us to our third point, discovery. Look at verses uh, 10 through 15 in our passage. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. So nothing so far has uh, worked to bring our psalmist out of his despair. You know, he's tried praying to God. He's tried thinking back on the good times and singing hymns. Nothing has worked. In fact, everything has tried to, or he's tried, has caused him to be driven further into despair until he gets to a place where he says, God, you said this. Why am I not feeling it? But with verse 10, something changes. He has a discovery. What the psalmist does is he goes back to God's word and he looks there at all of the amazing things that God has done. 
We see this in verse 10, where the psalmist says, he will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. See, he's looking back on God's work amongst the people of Israel. That's what he's doing. He remembers the deeds of God in the past. He remembers God's wonders of old, all the amazing miracles that he performed for Israel, his plan of salvation for Israel. He ponders God's work in the world. He he meditates on his mighty deeds. The psalmist, when he is in the absolute pits, you know, utterly despairing, he looks back on God's previous activity looks to the word of God where all of that activity is recorded and he meditates on this amazing stuff that God has done. And look what happens. Verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? See, something changes for our psalmist here. He has a realization in the midst of his meditation on God's word. And that realization, it's not, oh my goodness, I'm delivered from my suffering. It's not, I just need to pray more and I just need to have more faith and and God is going to give me whatever I want, whatever I desire. It's not, there must be some hidden sin in my life and that's why I'm going through this terrible experience. No, for all we know, he's never delivered from his suffering. But, What he comes to see is that God's ways are holy. His ways are above our ways. They are greater than we can ever imagine. God has plans and purposes for every event and everything in our lives that we can't even begin to understand. God has plans and purposes for our suffering that they go over us, completely over us, because he is a holy God perfect in every way, transcendent over everything, and we are merely human beings with a finite and limited knowledge of what's actually going on in the world. And we see a good example of this in the Gospel of John, actually. Uh, Jesus' disciples, they see this blind man, and they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? In other words, why is this guy blind, Jesus? Did he do something wrong to deserve this? Did his parents make some sort of mistake maybe? Why is he blind? Why does he suffer like this? And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. Listen to this. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The purpose of suffering in this man's life was so that Jesus could be glorified, so that God could receive glory, that his works might be displayed in this man. God's ways are not our ways. He is a holy, completely transcendent God whose plans and purposes for all of us are greater than we could ever imagine. And even though the psalmist is suffering, when he realizes this, he finds comfort. And we know that he finds comfort because in verse 14 through 15, he actually begins to praise God for all of these past actions God has done. The the references in these verses to the wonderful works of God, to his might over the people, to his redemption of the Israelites, they're all references that look back to the salvation of God's people in the Exodus event. 
You know, his present suffering, while it's difficult, it's muted through the knowledge of God's salvation of Israel and his love for his people. And this leads our psalmist to almost like explode in praise to God in the next part of our psalm. Uh, Let's look now at our fourth and final point, a doxology today. Now, doxology is basically uh, just a word that means worship. Uh, The reason I chose to use the word doxology is because I need another D word. Uh, You know, despair, doubt, discovery, doxology. It sounds a little bit better than being like triple D and then a W. Uh, But basically, it just means worship. And in uh, verse 16 through 20, this is exactly what we see the psalmist doing. Look there with me. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen." You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You know, here we have this highly poetic song of praise on the work of God in the Exodus event. The psalmist, in the midst of his suffering, he looks back on God's work of salvation, realizes how wonderful God's ways are, and then he poetically sings of this wonderful work describing the the parting of the Red Sea and the greatness of that event. Now, for the Jewish people, you know, the Exodus event is kind of like the pinnacle of God's work. It was the event that they would constantly turn back to and they would reflect upon as sort of the ultimate picture of God's saving work for them. The Exodus event, it was the event that demonstrated to them that God did love them, that he did care for them, that they were his people. So for the psalmist to reflect on this event is his way of looking back on God's saving acts in history of the people of Israel and being reminded there of God's love and compassion and mercy and faithfulness. But for us, you know, for us on the other side of the cross, we know that the exodus is merely a shadow pointing to the real salvation of God. You see, in the Exodus, God powerfully worked these wonders amongst the Egyptians to save his people from the oppression that they were experiencing at their hands. But we look to Jesus Christ, who delivered us from the real oppressors, sin and death and the devil. In the Exodus, God led his people out of Egypt and they became his people and he became their God. But we look back to Jesus Christ, who was God become man. We look back to the work of Jesus where we became sons and daughters of the living God through faith in him. In the Exodus event, God demonstrated his love for Israel by rescuing them from slavery and setting them apart as his own. But we look back to Jesus Christ, who demonstrated God's love for us by giving up his own life for us, as it says in Romans. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see what I'm saying? The psalmist was in deep despair. 
You know, this deep, deep turmoil in his life, but in the midst of his suffering, he calls to mind the previous work of God, rests in God's holy will for his life, and he trusts him. He suffers, but he suffers well by holding fast to God's word. And we can do it too. When we're in distress and we go to God's word, and we reflect upon his mighty saving acts. You know, both in the Exodus event, but also in the cross, we can know, know that God loves us. We can know that he has adopted us, that we are his children. We can know that we are united to Christ, that all of our sin has been completely forgiven, completely dealt with. It's no longer a part of our permanent record as we have faith in Jesus. And we can know that one day he's going to come again and he's going to set everything in the world right, including our suffering. It's going to be done away with. We hold fast to these truths from God's word in our suffering and we find hope. We know from Romans 8 that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We know that whatever it is we are facing, that it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And we know that a day is coming when Christ will return and we will be with God and he will wipe away our tears where death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We know all these things to be true and more in Jesus Christ. And as we hold fast to these things from God's word, we are able to suffer well. Jody's grandpa, uh, he left a profound mark on me in that conversation that we had in his kitchen. You know, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of this uh, terrible news that the family had received, he found comfort, comfort by holding fast to God's word. He held on to God's word so tightly, so tightly that he could look death in the face and say, just try me, just try me. And that, that's the way that I want to be. You know, I, I want to be so sure of God's word so shaped and formed by the promises in it, so confident in them, so hopeful in the work of Jesus that I can face suffering like him. Sure, pray for deliverance. Ask for healing. Now do all those wonderful things in the midst of your suffering. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, Suffering well means holding fast to God's word no matter what the outcome is and trusting in his promises.